Well, good morning. I'm excited to be here today and just love worshiping with God's people. Uh, man, some of these songs just wreck me. A uh, new song, uh, There's a Cloud, that we sang today. It's been something my wife and I have just been, you know, wrecked by God this, you know, last month or so as uh, we were introduced to it. And I just uh, enjoy uh, continuing to just sing His praise and allow the Spirit of God to come in and, and, and do what only He can do. And that is just shower us with love and grace and remind us how good our God really is. Um, I am so glad tax season is over. Anybody want to throw out an amen into that? Yes. You know, I, but if I was honest, I would say I can't wait till next year because honestly, I think the IRS was skimping out on their returns this year. They were being a little selfish and stingy. Uh, they didn't give me enough. I wanted more. I had some things I wanted to pay off and some things I wanted to do, but uh, maybe next year with the, the tax credits and whatnot, it, things will be better. But uh, I read a story this uh, past week that I heard the IRS was enlisting the help of clergy to assist them with their audits. You hear, hear about this? So this uh, IRS agent contacts this, this local uh, church and speaks to a man by the name of Father O'Malley. And the agent uh, calls Father O'Malley on the phone. He says, Father O'Malley? And Father O'Malley says, yes, yeah, that's, that's me. He says, uh, do you have or do you know a man by the name of Mr. Anderson? And Father O'Malley said, yes, yes, I do. And the IRS agent says, well, does Mr. Anderson go to your church? And Father O'Malley said, well, yes, Mr. Anderson goes to our church and, and uh, comes regularly. And he's like, okay, great. And then the IRS agent said, did Mr. Anderson recently donate $10,000 to your organization? And Father O'Malley said, no, but he's about to. And uh, so I just wanted to throw that out there because I trust everyone has, was honest on their tax returns this year. But just in case you might have fibbed a little bit, we will have the offering buckets available for an additional donation or two if you so desire. And uh, so just throwing it out there. Um, but no, I am, I'm excited. This is the last week of this series. And next week, we're going to start a new series on stewardship. Uh, we don't normally talk about money or tithing because our core value is crazy generosity. And that comes in many forms. And, uh, and we believe God's heart for his people is to be generous in, in every way. God is a generous God. He, he continually pours his blessings out on us. And we need to reflect that in our own generosity. But next week, we're starting a new series, going to be using uh, um, uh, some teaching by another pastor named Robert Morris. It's a series called The Blessed Life, and I believe it is just going to be an amazing thing. It's some of the best teaching on the subject that we can get, and so that'll be what we're going to be kicking off next week. Um, but just quickly before we get into the the message. Um, I was invited by another church uh, called Cornerstone Church in Highland, Michigan. It's about 45 minutes from here. On May the 18th, 18th, 19th, and 20th, they're having a convention or conference called Breathe. It's all about encountering the Holy Spirit and being filled up and being, uh, as a child of God, walking in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so I've invited our leadership team to, to come with my wife and I. We're planning on going down Friday evening, and I'll potentially go back again Saturday morning. If you are interested in going to that conference with us, let us know. Uh, for those of you that have children, they do have child care, I believe, up to sixth grade in the evening. evening. So uh, if child care is an issue, there, there's some of that for you. But just let me know. I think that's going to be an awesome time just to encounter the presence of God and worship, prayer, and with God's people. 
Um, again, we're closing this series on Philippians this week. If you missed any of the weeks on this series, you can uh, catch them uh, online on our website at vlchurch.tv forward slash messages online. Most of them are available there for you, uh, as well as when the YouTube works. We will have YouTube up and running, uh, and uh, technical difficulties sometimes prevent that from happening. But uh, the, that way you can kind of catch up and see where we've been these last 10 weeks. But the, the title of this message today, and I'm going to give it to you here, is this. Don't worry, be happy. So right now, right where you are, this is uh, interaction time. Touch your neighbor and tell them, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. We're going to be talking about joy today. This is what this whole series has been about, is having a mindset of joy. And, and today it's don't worry, be happy. And in this chapter, we are in Philippians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can navigate there as well as the verses will be on the screen. And something we are kind of trying new this weekend, uh, Chris Moyer's assisting with this. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, you should be able to go to events or live events in your app and find Vertical Life Church there. And some of the sermon notes and whatnot will be there for you to follow along so you can catch the points. Uh, in case you miss them on the screen, they'll be there for you as you continue to take notes. So that's pretty exciting. But there are really five ideas or five points that I believe that God's Word through the Apostle Paul is bringing to light in this chapter, this final chapter in the book of Philippians. And he's trying to help us understand something very important. And this is the core concept of this message. Normally, the core concept comes at the end to wrap everything up. But I'm going to give it to you today because you're going to see how this concept kind of unpacks through the chapter as we wrap up here. But the core concept of this message today is this, that joy and happiness are not byproducts of your life. Joy and happiness are, cho are choices you choose to experience. Joy and happiness are not byproducts of your life. Joy and happiness are choices you choose to experience. To acquire a joy set or a mindset of joy, a, a mindset that filters all your experiences and all the circumstances of your life through a lens of joy really comes down to choices, to choices. And I believe Paul kind of hammers this down right here in his opening statement in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Here is what Paul the apostle says. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and my crown that I receive for my work. Let's pray. Lord God, I just, again, dedicate this time to you as we open your word, as we look to see what you have for us today, as we unpack this passage of scripture and close out this study in Philippians. God, invade us, God. Invade our hearts and our minds. Do away with the distractions. I plead your blood over this service today, my God and King. I rebuke the enemy of servants' works and effects. God, I, I speak against all offense and pretense and all the baggage that we've brought in with us this week, God. And I just ask that our hearts and our minds would be just ready and eager to hear from you today. God, give us ears to hear and hearts that are desiring to understand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Philippians 4.1, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love and long to see you, my dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. A couple of things to set the stage for this talk. We've kind of mentioned this all the way through, but it's important that we refresh ourselves here that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison, from jail. He's writing this letter to this church from jail. He's awaiting trial, the trial that is ultimately going to determine whether he lives or dies. And we know through history that he ends up giving his life for his faith. As well, we know that up until this point where he's in prison, on literally multiple occasions, Paul has struggled to survive, to just to preach the good news, just to tell people about Jesus and all that he has done. He has escaped murder attempts, literally being left for dead on a few occasions. He was shipwrecked. He was homeless, poor, and hungry, uh, almost to the point where uh, he was sleeping on the streets and didn't even have enough clothes to stay warm just to start churches and tell people about Jesus and what he has done. This is the only reason why he endured this suffering. And while he was suffering for Jesus, those he thought loved him and appreciated him and and were with him began to betray him and work against his ministry to keep it from being a success because they thought they would elevate themselves and and give themselves a, a bigger or better name than Paul. Friends who started out in ministry with him over one little falling out or one disagreement be like left him to uh, go about their own way. They abandoned him because of a falling out. Paul had an infinite number of reasons to be discouraged. He had an infinite number of reasons to be joyless. And yet, here he is writing to us about joy. And he starts this final thought in this last chapter, this closing of this letter to the church, by making a bold statement In the very first verse of chapter 4, he says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. He says, stay true to the Lord. And what you'll discover about joy, about happiness, about, about this feeling that all of us desire to have in our life is that your level of joy is determined by how true you are to the Lord. Your level of joy will be determined by how true you are to the Lord. Jesus said one time, it's a very very famous verse, a very well-known passage of scripture, and I'm sure many of you can quote it. He says, if you love me, then do what, church? Keep my commandments. If you love me, then keep my commandments. What we have to understand about Christ is he's not talking about following the rules. He says, keep my commandments. In another passage in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life what? More abundantly, life overflowing, that you would be blessed beyond what you yourself can contain. This is why Jesus came to bless us, to give us an overflowing life. So when he says, if you love me, obey my commandments, he's not saying, I want to ruin your fun. I want to make your life miserable. I want you to be bored to death out of your mind because of this, that, and the other. He's saying, I have these guidelines set up for you that if you follow this because of your love for me, your life is going to be blessed. If you remain in the truth, the truth will set you free. 
free, right? Remain in the truth. Obey his commandments. Follow the Lord. His commandments, his rules, his regulations, his precepts are not to repress us. It is to set us free. It is not to discourage us, but to lift us up in abounding joy. But there's another person that does desire to wreck our fun. Matter of fact, Jesus said, the thief comes but not for to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is that thief. Satan is constantly trying to work in our lives to pull us away from being obedient to God, from staying in the truth, from from remaining faithful to his teachings, from obeying his commandments. And what we see is that whenever we follow the ways of the enemy, is we see nothing but stealing, killing, and destroying. Our Lord's commandments lead to blessing. Therefore, disobedience leads to dysfunction and discouragement. You can't have it both ways. If his commandments lead to blessing, then the opposite, disobedience, leads to dysfunction and discouragement. We'll make this real practical. Jesus said that as his followers, we are to walk in forgiveness. Ask yourself this question. Are you forgiving? Are you a forgiving person? If you're not a forgiving person, then why are you surprised with all the resentment and bitterness in your heart that's robbing you of your joy? Jesus said to walk in generosity. Are you a generous person? If you're not a generous person, then why are you surprised that you're always worried and stressed out about money? Because the generous are blessed, the greedy are cursed. If you're generous, then there's no reason to worry. Are you living a moral life? Are you honoring the marriage bed and being faithful to your current or maybe future spouse by keeping yourself pure or only to your husband or wife? Or are you doing whatever feels good in the moment with whoever will pay attention to you? If you're not honoring the marriage bed, then why are you surprised with all the hardship killing the joy in your life? Why are you surprised? You see, how faithful we are to the Lord determines the level of our joy. This applies to all areas of our lives. Our joy and our happiness will be determined by how true we are to the Lord. And God wants good for us, and he has set out his precepts, his commandments, and his regulations in his scripture, in the Bible, to bring us into the greatest, most blessed life we could possibly have. And what the focus of the joy is, this is something else that that kind of gets in the way, is what the focus of Paul's joy and even God's joy is not stuff or stature. The focus of Paul's joy and God's joy is not stuff or stature. The first point is that our level of joy is determined by how faithful or how true we are to the Lord. Number two, the second point we're going to see today is that the focus of joy is people. The focus of joy is people. Jesus said there are two great commandments in all of the Bible. Love God with everything you are, and the second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here in the second part of chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I love you and long to see you, my dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. People were his joy. And what people? It was the very people he gave his life to love. It was the very people he gave up his freedom to share the good news. 
and the fruit of their faith as they came to Christ, as they began to grow in the Lord and they began to witness and reach out and, and, and walk in faith and miracles were happening and people were coming to Christ and getting baptized and giving their life to Christ. And Paul could see the very seeds that he planted grow and mature in somebody else's life. That was all the reward that he ever needed because he knew the significance of that. People were his joy, and their faith was a reward for him. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, this is what God says about his people. He says, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God of all the people on the earth, and the Lord God has chosen you to be his own special what? Treasure. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Now that the salvation has come, not just for the Jews and the Gentiles, marrying both Old and New Testament together into one holy people, Peter says, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own what? Possession. You're God's treasure. You're God's possession. And as a result of you being God's treasure, his possession, you now can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. God's treasure, God's joy, God's crown is not money or precious stones. It is his his very own people. The people he gathers unto himself through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In the Bible, the word for church is the Greek word ekklesia or ekklesia, and it literally means a called out assembly. It is a group of people gathered together for one common purpose. This is the treasure of God, his called out assembly, his church, his people. The people of God are the ones whom God loves. And the ones whom God loves are the ones who love him and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. True treasure is not found in health and or in wealth. True treasure is found in the treasure of God. It is found in people. I mean, think about it. This is an old adage, but it's often said, you can't take your treasure with you when you go. You know, many, many people will use the illustration that have you ever seen a U-Haul traveling behind a hearse? It seems ridiculous, but you've, you never see that. But sometimes we live our lives like that's going to be the case, that we strive for all this stuff, that stuff and experiences and these things are going to bring us pleasure or going to bring us joy. But when the day comes where we pass from life to death, we're not bringing anything with us. But yet, you can bring every person you can bring with you. You can bring souls with you. You can send souls ahead of you into heaven. You see, there will always be another bill to worry about, another expense. And everything we acquire in this life will one day be dissolved. Sometimes I get really angry with our life and our culture when I look at all we spend on on presents for like Christmas and and all these different holidays only for just another couple months later, they end up in the trash or maybe a year later, they end up being donated and, and given away. We spent hundreds of dollars on these things that within a short period of time are no longer used to us. And we stress out about it. We got to have this, this, and this. I, you know, we've kind of been going around and around with my, my son about video games. Right now, the craze is this game called a Fortnite. And I didn't know it was a game until my, my daughter told me about it. I thought it was just an old saying that people would, would use like, oh, they, they've not done that in a fortnight. You know, it's like a period of time. We'd use that as an expression. And she was like, quit saying that. All people talk about at school is a fortnight. And I'm like, 
why are kids in middle school talking about a Fortnite? That's like an old phrase. They're like, no, it's a game, and it's all this stuff. And I found out recently that colleges now are creating what are called esports teams for athletics, and they're actually giving scholarships for kids to play video games in college. And I'm thinking our, our nation is done. We're, we're over. We're coming to an end, you know, that we're actually giving scholarships for kids to play games in college. This is ridiculous. But, uh, but we've been going back and forth with my son about, about being obsessed with games because not too long ago, he got a PlayStation uh, 3 and uh, got some games for that. But since all of his friends have a PlayStation 4, that's what he wants. And then, you know, he's like, when after that, I'm going to get an Xbox and this and that and the other. And I'm like, with well, the moment you were to get that, something else is going to come out. And that $300 thing we just bought you is going to be worthless. It's like, there's no point. There's no point to pursue this. But we do this all the time with our lives in all these different facets. We worry about bills. We worry about trinkets and toys. But at the end of life, they will mean nothing. We can't take them with us. But people will live on forever. Matthew 6, Jesus said, if you seek the kingdom above all else and live righteously, he'll give you everything you need. All the stuff we worry about, the bills, the, the, the house, the clothes, all these things that we worry about. He says, if you seek the kingdom of God first above everything else and you live righteously, you live morally, you obey his commandments, you stay true to the Lord, God is going to supply all of your needs. Well, the question is, is how do we live for the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God is comprised of souls, not savings accounts. The kingdom of God is comprised of souls, of people, not of stuff, not savings accounts. So the question today, church, is you're looking at your joy experience is our people, your joy and crown, or are you searching for something far less permanent? This is an area of life that I've struggled with in my own life that I, I didn't realize the joy that comes with serving people and, and, and investing in people until really... It hasn't been that long. This is a question we all have to ask ourselves, especially in this culture we find ourselves in, is our people, our joy and, cr- our joy and crown, or are we searching for something far less permanent? And if they're not, then why do we wonder why we're never satisfied and always on the brink of worry and fear? Why are we always unsatisfied? You see, your happiness and your joy is determined by how true you are to the Lord. It's determined by the focus of your joy, which is people, not possessions. Number three is that joy is also a choice. Paul says to choose joy. Beginning in verse two, he's getting ready to address some believers, some really leaders in this church that have made a significant impact. Here's what he says. He says, now I appeal to you, Yodia and Sententi, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. Verse four, always be full of joy. It's a choice. Always be full of joy in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Another translation says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It is a choice that we choose each day. Verse five, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do, remembering the Lord is coming soon. Here he's 
discussing this issue with these church, this church and he's telling these ladies to resolve your issues because the struggle is not worth robbing you of your joy. The struggle is not worth robbing you of your joy. Oftentimes we let circumstances and struggles and strife and, and relationship problems rob us of your joy. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Joy is a choice. So when we're faced with discouraging circumstances, we need to choose joy, to always be full of joy in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. But how do we do this? How do we choose joy and shift from discouragement to joy in the moment? When, when the temper's going and, and, and all the nerves are firing and all these things are going within us, how do we do this? Because though the kingdom of God is comprised of people, I said this before, peopling ain't easy. If you are in the people profession, if you have to people people a lot, peopling ain't easy. You're going to have people problems. I, I hear many pastors say, it's kind of a running joke, but they say ministry would be easy if it weren't for the people. Well, the problem is if there weren't people, you wouldn't have ministry. Right? So it's like, it's like a running joke. But there will always be people problems when dealing with people. You're going to have problems with your boss, your coworkers. You're going to have problems with your friends at school. You're going to have problems with your teachers. You're going to have problems with your spouse. You're going to have problems with your kids. There are always going to be people problems. Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, which means the people really aren't the problem. But people are the focus of the problem often. And Paul is urging these two ladies to be true to the Lord, to settle these differences, not to walk in unforgiveness, not to hold on to bitterness, not to gossip about each other to their closest friends and, and in the circle, not to create division in this church or in their faith community. And he asked this other, the servant in the church to act as a mediator to help resolve these issues because sometimes at one point or another, each of us will struggle. We all struggle and we'll all need to help or submit to spiritual leadership in order to get issues resolved from time to time. But he's encouraging them to work these problems out because unresolved conflict is a major source of discouragement. Unresolved conflict is a joy killer. And when we're choosing to, to sit in and rest in and, and stew and brew in our uh, people problems and in our unresolved conflicts, we are diminishing the amount of joy we are able to experience. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. He says this. He says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Paul's writing this to this church about conflict resolution because he's saying that when we bottle things up or when we sweep things under the rug, when we don't resolve our conflicts with other people, that is the devil's playground. That is an open invitation for Satan to come into your life and begin messing things up, to begin ruining your day and ruining your week, your month, your year, to creating all of these problems. And so uh, when it comes to these issues and circumstances we have, we need to choose joy. And part of that choosing joy is working to resolve the conflicts and problems that we have in our lives. You see, resolving conflict is not about being right. It's about being right with God. Resolving conflict is not about being right. 
It's about being right with God. And this is really up here with me because I think as a man, it is a lot easier to work on fixing things. And, and when I have conflict in my marriage, I'm kind of analyzing, okay, let's look at the facts. This is what I believe to be true. Therefore, the problem is not with me, it's with you. So let me fix you and bring you into agreement with how I see things in, in the situation. And oftentimes I find myself on the side of of, of fighting or standing or holding my ground because I believe in my heart that I'm right. But you know, Jesus was right all the time. And there was a day he stood before a whole council who was accusing him of false things and he didn't say a word. He was humble. And he allowed people to say what they were gonna say, to accuse about what they were going to accuse. And he was willing to love these people enough to let them come to the conclusion on their own. Sometimes to resolve conflict, it takes humility. Humility that says, you know what? I don't have to be right. I'm going to let you come to the truth on your own. And by doing that, sometimes we have the opportunity to realize, hey, I was really wrong anyways. But when we allow the other person to come to the truth on their own, when that day comes and that truth comes to light, then that's not the opportunity for I told you so's and ha ha, see, I was right. No, because God's love is not about shaming or condemning. God's love is all about drawing us close to himself. So when it comes to conflict resolution, when it comes to choosing joy in the midst of a circumstance, it's not about proving yourself right. It's not about then showing the person how they were wrong and how they were an idiot for thinking the way that they were thinking. No, Paul is encouraging these two ladies to be considerate in all they do in verse five. Why? Because people are the joy in the crown, not being right. It's about the person's heart. It's about the relationship. It's about the unity that you have. It's about what matters more than the present argument or conflict. And number two, he says, the Lord is coming back soon. And the reality is for all of us, one day Jesus will come back and we will all stand before him and we will give an account for our lives. Jesus said, we'll have to give an account for every idle word that we've even spoken. We will give an account. And our reward in heaven will be based on what we do here on earth. Our reward in heaven is based on what we do here on earth. So the encouragement is to, in every circumstance, with people problems, with, with dysfunction, don't let animosity cloud your perception. Be humble. Be considerate. Strive for unity and peace and in every situation. And how do we do that? How do we strive for unity and peace when you have people problems? How do you shift your mental gears? How do you shift your emotional gears in those moments? Verse four, he says, choose joy and do so by rejoicing in the Lord. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's about worship, redirecting our focus to worship. Number four, you see, we don't focus on the problem that we're encountering, the problem at hand. We don't focus on the problem we focus on God's power. When we're choosing joy in the moment, when we're trying to shift from dysfunction and discouragement to joy, we don't focus on the problem. We focus on God's power. You see, the problem elicits emotion, but God's power elicits faith. 
The problem elicits an emotion, but God's power elicits faith. Faith, this does not mean we sweep problems under the rug or ignore problems, but the problem isn't the focus. The power of God to solve the problem is the focus. God, how are you going to work this out? And I thank you in advance that you've already worked it out in the name of Jesus. God, I, I thank you that your goodness and grace is going to cover me, and you're going to give me wisdom to, to handle this situation properly. You're going to restore this relationship, and we'll be able to give you glory and more praise for the benefits and the good things that come out of this situation. It's not about the problem. It's about the power of God. You see, we're never going to escape problems. A joyful person, the one with a joy set, is going to choose to focus on the power of God rather than their people problem. Worship as a means to guard your faith. Worshiping God in the moment that you're faced with adversity, when your relationship is about to fall apart, when you're about to lose your job, when you find out news you weren't expecting from the doctor, in those moments, we have a choice. We can either worry or we can worship. We can either worry, which leads to discouragement and dysfunction, or we can worship, which leads to joy and, and, and happiness. There's a man in the Old Testament named Job. Job, after losing his children, his servants, his wealth, and eventually his health, what seemed like all in one afternoon. The man never sinned, never did anything wrong to occur this curse. It was really a wager between God and, and Satan as a reason to why he had to encounter this situation. But after losing everything, what seemed to be all at once, a righteous man lost everything. It's interesting what he said when he found out the news. In Job chapter 1, verse 21 Job found out he lost everything. His family was dead aside from his wife. He lost his wealth. He was a very wealthy man. His servants were dead. His crops were destroyed. He lost everything in one moment. It would be really easy just to say, you know what? God must hate me. Therefore, I hate God and I'm walk away. But that's not what he said. In Job 1.21, he said, I came naked from my mother's womb. And I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In other words, I came into this world with nothing and I'm going to leave this world with nothing. I can't take anything with me. So what the Lord has given me, he's given me every good thing. Even the moments that I had with my family, God gave that to me as a blessing. The riches that I enjoyed, God gave that to me as a blessing. Everything that I've experienced and had, God has given that to me. So praise his name forever and ever. In all of this, Job did not worry. He trusted God. And he worshiped God. And it guarded his faith. And no matter what he faced, no matter the negative influences that tried to drag him down, no matter how many times his friends tried to falsely accuse him and guilt him into taking blame, he remained faithful to the Lord. And God ended up blessing him four times over what he had. You see, some of us the moment we enter adversity, the moment we start entering struggle or problems arise or all of a sudden we, we face some discouragement, our faith falls apart. We become overtaken by fear and anxiety and we lose hope. And for some of us, we, we've lived like this for years and we can't even remember the last time we felt joy because our life has been riddled with nothing but anxiety and fear. And for me, this was true not even like two years ago. I remember just thinking to myself, why am I unhappy? Why do I not feel joy? I'm a believer in Christ. I love God. I'm in ministry, but I'm not happy. There's something wrong in my heart. 
And it's because we've made a habit of worry to the point that it became a stronghold or foothold from the devil when the answer has been to focus on God's power and worship him through every circumstance. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Paul says to the church of Philippi, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. Here he's saying, there's a problem. You've got discouragement. You've got adversity. Well, then you need to pray. You need to lean in. You need to jump your faith into action. Lean in. Tell him what you need and then thank him. That's worship. Praise God. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you for being good. Thank you, Lord. Seek the Lord, thank him, worship him, focus on his power and his goodness. In verse seven, he says, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. This is cause and effect. You want joy in the midst of sorrow? You want strength in the midst of weakness? Don't worry, worship. Take your thoughts captive and fix them on the Lord. As Paul closes his letter, he states in verse number eight, he says, now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Someone say one final thing. One final thing. That kind of sounds pretty important, right? Right, Paul is saying this because he's like, like, don't miss this. Here's one thing. I don't want you to miss this. This is the part of the message where it's like, okay, if you've missed everything else, don't miss this. Get, get this. Here's, he's getting to say, I'm about to tell you something really important. Verse 8, he says, now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. Somebody say, fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts. Point number five is fix your thoughts. Did you know that you can fix your thoughts? Did you know it is your choice to think what you think? You are a tr trinity, just like God is a trinity. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are body, mind, and soul. You are body, mind, and spirit. And your spirit is in charge of your mind, is in charge of your thoughts. What you choose to think is what you will decide to do or what you will become. Proverbs 23, verse 7, is for as he, it says, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts will determine your outcome or your life. There was an old commercial that used to come on. I remember it because there was a little jingle. It used to go something like, you are what you eat. You guys remember that? Those of you that are old enough to, to remember. You are what you eat from your head down to your feet. And there was a little jingle that went along with that. And uh, it, even though that's kind of funny and cute and it's about eating well and, and being healthy, the problem is, is it's not entirely true. You see, you are not what you eat because thought precedes action. The reality is, is you are what you think to eat because when you think to eat something, you then eat something. When you choose to eat a candy bar you shouldn't have had because you just pounded down five loads of pancakes with extra syrup, you thought to do that. And studies show that even now, even for a split second, that a thought precedes your emotion. Somebody does something and it hurts your feelings, your thoughts lead you to feel the pain. Your thoughts lead you to feel the emotion. What you choose to think will determine how you proceed and how you react to any given situation. Your thoughts are vitally important. 
And the problem with our thoughts is that we also have an enemy who continually whispers negative thoughts and dysfunctional thoughts into our minds, thoughts that are not true, thoughts that lead us away from being true to the Lord, thoughts that rob us of our joy because they lead us to, uh, to walk in emotions and walk in actions that do nothing but increase his plan to steal, kill, and destroy. But Paul says we are to fix our thoughts. How do we do that? Well, he tells the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, this is a great passage of scripture to memorize. There's a lot of truth in here. We're going to kind of break this down here. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning. That is worry over worship. Our natural inclination as humans is to worry about a situation, not worship about a situation. And here Paul's saying we have been given mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to not hold these strongholds of human reasoning, human reaction. And he says, and also to destroy false arguments. These are the lies of the enemy. These are the lies of Satan that gets you to doubt to, uh, your belief that God is not just good, but he is completely good. And that God is not just powerful, but that he is all powerful. <sighs> Why did God let you go through that? Oh, he must not love you. If God was good, he wouldn't let you endure that circumstance. You must be on your own. You must not be worthy. No one will ever love you because of what you did. We hear all these thoughts in our head. These are whispers of the enemy. But our weapons are used to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and false arguments. Verse 5 says, We destroy every proud, obstacle, every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God, from knowing the truth of who He is. He is all-powerful and He is all-good. And He loves us and our love and His love can never be separated from us. We knock down every obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And here's the key. He says, We capture... They're rebellious thoughts. Another passage of scripture says, take thoughts captive and we teach them to obey Christ. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. My question is, is in this passage of scripture, is who is the them in this verse? In verse five. And we teach them to obey Christ. Who is the them? Somebody throw it out there. No. Good guess, though. If you know anything about English, you have to go back to the subject that precedes the modifier, right? The subject before the modifier is the rebellious thoughts. So to teach them to obey Christ, essentially, when we take our thoughts captive, we then need to teach the rebellious thoughts to obey Christ. What are the rebellious thoughts? Well, that's the human reasoning. That's the worry over worship. Those are the false lies, the, the false speaking of the enemy. So we not only have to take these thoughts captive, we then have to train our minds, train our thoughts to come into obedience to Christ. And this does not happen by accident. This is an act of will as we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. If we want to experience life differently, then we need to begin thinking about life differently. Philippians 4.8, Paul says to fix your thoughts. That means... For us, not only do I decide what I'm not going to think, I also have to decide what I am going to think. Not only do I decide what I'm not going to think, I'm not going to think about 
that woman in that way. I'm not going to think about stealing. I'm not going to think about all these different things. I have to then implement what I am going to think. And he continues in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Philippians. And he says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, everything you've heard from me and saw me doing, then God, the God of peace, will be with you. Not only do I need to stop with the negative thoughts, but I have to replace those thoughts with the truth. And Paul says, when we do this, when we stop the negativity and replace it with the positivity, the truth of God, says the God of peace will be with us. Now that strikes me as, as an odd thing in this passage of scripture because as a believer of Christ, I know that the Holy Spirit lives in me. So the God of peace, God, is always with me wherever I go. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The psalmist said, there's not a place that I can go where I can escape the very presence of God. So wherever we are, God's presence is here. So what is he getting at by saying, by, by doing this, by changing from the negativity to the positivity, from fixing our thoughts on, on what is good rather than focusing on what is, what is wrong, what is out of sync with God's will, what does this actually mean? And I believe that, that there's a difference between knowing a truth and feeling a truth. I can know something with my head, but with my heart, it just doesn't feel like it's true. You know, I know as believers, we, we know that God loves us with our head, right? We know God loves us here, but do you always feel like God loves you here? Like always? Maybe after a failure? Right? There's a difference between knowing a truth and feeling the truth. We understand that we're gifted by God for a great purpose. Every child of God has been given a spiritual gift and has a purpose in this world for the kingdom of God. But even though we know that with our minds, do we feel that enough in our hearts to act on the faith to do anything with it? See, often what we know and what we feel are out of sync. We know our spouse loves us, but often we don't feel like they love us. We know our kids respect us, but often we don't feel like our kids respect us. We know our friends accept us just as we are, but we don't feel like they accept us as we are, and we feel like we need to continually prove ourselves worthy of their acceptance. Knowing and feeling can be out of sync. And when our knowing and our feeling is out of sync, there is disappointment and there is discouragement. And Satan, our enemy, wants to feed you these lies so that what you feel will be out of sync with what God is telling you, leading you to distrust God, weaken your faith, and rob you of your joy. The very thing that happened in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam and Eve, don't trust God, he's a liar, he's holding out on you, there's something more for you. And they went the way of the enemy. And I think this is many of us today. I think to some degree, we all struggle with this issue where we know what God's word says, but there are underlying beliefs that keep us, these rebellious thoughts that keep us from feeling those truths. These rebellious thoughts are left unchecked. And so rather than being able to believe with all of our hearts in the truth of scripture, there's discouragement, which makes it hard to trust God and even walk in faith. 
But Paul is saying here that if you begin to take your thoughts captive, when you begin to think rebellious thoughts, you take these thoughts captive, something as simple as like, you know God wants you to do something, there's ministry he wants you to do, but in your heart you don't feel like you're able to do that. It's out of agreement with God's will, what you know from God because of worry and fear. Or you know God is the provider of all you, all you need. He's gonna provide everything you need, but worry and fear is making you feel an urgency to try to take matters into your own hand. Or you think like your marriage can never be better because he or she will never change out of worry and fear, but you know God is faithful and everything inside of you feels joyless and hopeless because of your situation because you're focused on the problem and not on the power of God. If you would begin in those moments to combat those rebellious thoughts, take them captive, focus on what is true, that God is good, God is powerful, that we'd fix our thoughts on what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is honorable, and the excellencies worthy of praise. You're gonna see a shift in your mindset. And it, something as simple as things that I've learned to do, I mean, if you ever see me walking down on the side of the road, you might, you might think, you know, what's up with Pastor Joey over there? If I'm walking down the side of the road and I have a bad thought in my mind, I'm just like, <laughs> taking that captive. Or rebuke that thought in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, I'm not thinking that. What's true? What's true is God is good and God is powerful. You know, sometimes I'm driving the car, I almost wrecked the car next to me. I'm driving, yeah, no, I'm not thinking that. I'm going to take that captive. We have to begin implementing our will. We have to begin taking thoughts captive. This doesn't just happen by chance. If we want to see a shift in our mindset, we have to work at it. We have to take the thoughts that are out of agreement with God's word and will and place them to be obedient to Christ and replace those thoughts with what is true. And over time, as you take those thoughts captive and fix your thoughts on what is true, you will begin to feel what you know. You'll begin to feel it as you're knowledge and your heart come into agreement. And I believe at that moment, you're going to feel the peace of God. The peace that only comes from God. To make this real, and you, do you want to know why you feel like your marriage is hopelessly doomed? It's because all you focus on are the negative aspects of your spouse. And that blinds you to see anything positive in him or her. So, of course, you're not going to feel any joy in your marriage. But what if, what if you trusted God enough to take those rebellious thoughts captive and only focus on what is excellent and worthy of praise? You see, everyone has flaws. People will always let you down. But what if you choose, as Paul said in chapter 3, to forget the past and press on, focusing on the very promises of God? What is praiseworthy? So instead of a running list of offenses, you had a running list of wins and victories. That would change your view of your spouse. Begin to draw your heart toward them again. You see, there were good things in your spouse that drew you to them in the beginning, and I would bet to believe those good things are still there. They've just been hidden under years and years of hurt and resentment. But by choosing to focus on the good and not the bad, you'll begin to unearth those qualities that you loved and rediscover why you were married in the first place. What if at your job, 
You stopped focusing on everything you didn't like. My boss, he's a jerk. I can't believe they only give us 10 minutes for break. I can't believe I got points knocked off because I walked in 30 seconds late. I can't believe all this extra overtime that they're making us work. I'm even on a holiday. Don't they understand I have a family? All this stuff that we constantly go through. But what if at your job you stopped focusing on everything you didn't like and started focusing on what you appreciated? Like, oh man, I'm thankful my boss gave me an opportunity to get a paycheck. Oh, I'm thankful that I get a a paycheck every week, every couple of weeks, and that pays for my bills and I have a roof over my head. Oh, I'm thankful that I get this extra overtime. I'm going to get to buy my wife something pretty nice and I'm going to get brownie points for that. You know, what if we chose to stop thinking about the negative and fix our thoughts on what is good? That would change your work experience. What if rather than worrying about your finances and comparing everything you don't have and can't do to what everything else, everyone else has and can do, you took those thoughts captive and praised God for every blessing you might just discover you have more than you need, bringing you peace and contentment. And when those financial crises come up, rather than worry, you took those thoughts captive and you worshiped. You focus on the truth. I believe we would discover what Paul understood and says in Philippians 4.19, that the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Joy and happiness are not byproducts of your life. Joy and happiness are choices you choose to experience. And every believer can live through a mindset of joy, through a joy set, because we have been given the greatest gift of all, and that is a relationship with our Heavenly Father through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy, for there is an unlimited wealth of benefits for knowing Christ and receiving the salvation of your souls. Forgiveness of your sins is just the beginning. And because of what Christ did, I can wade through the dysfunction and the disappointments of life, and I can look how God in his infinite mercy, like when I look at all these problems, all these things that I'm struggling with, everything that makes me too weak to even get out of bed in the morning, if I would just look at the fact that Jesus robbed me of hell and has given me eternal life, I now have something to get up out of bed for. When I look at what Christ has done, everything he's given me, eternal life through his son, that alone is worth shouting at the top of my lungs, praise ye the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, which is why Paul in Philippians 4.20 closes this out by saying, now all glory to God the Father forever and ever. Amen. So as we go, as we close and go into a time of response today, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. How true have you been to the Lord in how you've been thinking and living? Have you been following your rebellious thoughts or have you been taking them captive and fixing your thoughts on what is good, what is right, on God's power and God's goodness? Are you investing more in the kingdom of God than in the pleasures of this world? Are people your joy and crown? 
Are you committed to renewing your mind and proactively taking your thoughts captive, fixing your thoughts on what is true and what is good? You see, I, I know because this had been my experience. There's some of you that have, you've not had joy in a long time. You are worn. You are weary. You wear discouragement like a blanket. And today, you need to remember the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and it is available to you even now, right where you are. Today, in just a second, when we stand for worship, when we close with worship, as we not focus on our worries, but we focus on worship, when we don't fix our thoughts on what's rebellious against the Lord and fix our thoughts on what is good and honoring to the Lord, as we direct our praise to Him and give Him thanks for all He's done, in just a minute, you need to come down here to this old-fashioned altar. Come before the Lord and confess that discouragement to Him. Let it come out. Let what's been hiding in darkness come out into the light. Confess how you've not been true, how you've not been invested, how you've not been taking your thoughts captive, and you've been allowing the enemy to run in your life, creating discouragement, leading you to make decisions that only bring more brokenness and hurt in your life. Ask God to forgive you and then empower you to commit today to begin renewing your heart and mind. To begin walking and living through a joy set, a mind of joy. And to help others be encouraged to walk through a joy set, to have a mind of joy. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for just a few moments. God has come give you an abundant life. Do you want it? Jesus has come that you might have life. Every wrong, every transgression can be forgiven through faith and trust in his death and resurrection. And you can be set on a path, a path and a journey that will lead you to a destination you never thought possible by simply loving the Lord enough to obey his commandments, to follow him with all your heart. And as you follow him, you invest in the people around you. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's never been a time in your life where you said, you know, Pastor Joey, I know I've made some mistakes, but you know, honestly, if I were to leave here today and if I were to die and stand before God, I don't know if he'd let me into heaven. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't even really know if he loves me. Let me tell you, friend, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God showed his great love that he gave Jesus to die for you. For God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God already loves you. He loved you enough to breathe life into your lungs, giving you life. He loved you enough to send Jesus into this world to make a way for you to be saved. He loves you without a doubt. And his offer of salvation, his offer of forgiveness is given to you. 
right here where you are, you can begin a relationship with God. You can know that you know that your sins are forgiven, that your soul is saved, that when you go to heaven, you'll spend eternity in heaven with him forever and forever by accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior, making that confession today. Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, if you confess Jesus is your Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your sins will be no more. And that's the moment I know many of us can look back to to say, in that moment, I experienced true joy, true abundant joy. There was a well that sprung up in my life and in my heart that overflowed and I couldn't contain it because I finally realized my purpose. I finally realized that my heavenly father loved me and I was reunited with him. His spirit came into my heart and I've never been the same. Today, you can have that same encounter. Right here where you are, if you've never trusted in Christ, pray this with me from your heart to God. He'll hear you. Just say, Father in heaven, I know I've made some mistakes. And the Bible calls that sin. And that sin has separated us. But I also believe that you loved me and sent Jesus to die for me. And I believe he came back from the dead so I could be saved. I trust him today as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and save my soul. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to live a life that honors you now and forever. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. If you just prayed that prayer today, I just want to pray for you. If you prayed that and accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you made that decision today, would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, that was me. I prayed that prayer today. Thank you, Father. God, I trust that your spirit's at work. And God, I know that in the heart of every one of us is a need for your everlasting joy. Holy Spirit, come. Right now, come. And begin to break down the hardness and the walls around our hearts. Break down the walls and the hardness. Break down the pride. Break down the the self-deception and the denial and all the things that we've allowed the enemy to build up around our hearts. Break down the embarrassment. Break down just all the things that have kept us from feeling joy. And God, in just a moment when we stand, I pray that those who need to come forward and lay themselves down and receive a cleansing, healing flood from the Lord would just lay themselves down, God, and receive that. Let your rain fall today. Let your mercy fall. Let your power from heaven fall. Break away the discouragement. Break away the pain and let joy erupt in this place today in the name of Jesus. This we ask in your name. Amen. Let's all stand together.